Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 294 Red Bull to Buddha. We're joined by former religion scholar turned technology entrepreneur David Pasiak to discuss his book, Red Bull to Buddha, which explores how a Buddhist practice can help one navigate a world that's in a constant state of disruption. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. I am joined today by a special guest, David Pasiak. David, thanks for taking the time to join us on Buddhist Geeks today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Vince. I really appreciate it. Just a little bit of background before we jump into the kind of meat and potatoes of our conversation or the uh, soy and uh, veggies, if you if you prefer. Um, <laughs> David is a former religious studies scholar. You went to uh, Princeton where you were pursuing a PhD and studying religion and technology and all sorts of interesting stuff, which we'll get into. And then you uh, at some point made a shift and went to the private sector. So kind of shifting out of academia uh, out of the ivory tower into the kind of nitty gritty startup scene. And you've been doing um, strategy and marketing consulting uh, for early stage startups. Um, so really yep. interesting kind of confluence of experiences there. And you're also a meditation practitioner, long time, a couple decades at least, right? Yeah, since about 94 was when I first started practicing meditation. Okay, awesome. So Part of the reason, you know, we wanted to have you on the show is um, you've written this really fascinating book. And, and just from the title of it alone, I think um, <laughs> you can kind of get a sense for why you're on Buddhist Geeks today. Yeah. Um, so, so the title of the book is Red Bull to Buddha, Innovation and the Search for Wisdom. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to start with the title because this is an odd title, Red Bull to Buddha. What in the world is the relationship between Red Bull, the sports energy drink, and Buddha. So it's it's funny because wondering about the relationship of Red Bull to Buddha is basically the core. The core. There's a story that I had when I was in in Thailand. Basically, I I took I decided to to take a, a ended up buying a one way trip to Thailand on what I perceived to be basically sort of a, a search for wisdom. Uh, slowly after the uh, the economic crash, and I really kind of saw that as being caused by all of this sort of horrific greed. So I, I ended up going to to Thailand and went to Chiang Mai, and Chiang Mai uh, means walled city. It's uh, it's this historic city in uh, in northern Thailand, second largest city in the country, and it's kind of the epicenter for Buddhism in the region. Um, and so basically, historically, Chiang Mai was fought over between the Thais and the Burmese. And basically, every time one empire conquered Chiang Mai, they would build another Buddhist temple. And it's almost like they were sort of one-upping the empire that had it before. And of mm -hmm. course, every time it changed hands, they would, the last thing they would do was burn the, burn the temples. So Chiang Mai is sort of like this living museum of Buddhist architecture going back centuries. And it's this amazing historic city. So I was I was going there and kind of walking around just in sort of awe of all of this 
incredible historic Buddhist architecture and looking at going into these temples. And I walk into this one temple and I see this tray of glass, essentially like tray of glasses, like you would see glasses stacked in a, in a restaurant. And each of the glasses had a little bottle of Red Bull in it. And so I'm thinking, you know, what's going on here? Why are they offering Red Bull to the Buddha? They're and these, these bottles, the Red Bull was obviously put out there deliberately, you know, and you could leave money and, you know, then you would go and, and offer it as a devotional offering. And so in the context of the book, I kind of like go through this little thought experiment of, you know, what could this possibly mean? So, you know, I had basically, I had been doing uh, marketing and strategy professionally since about 2004. And I'd actually studied a lot of, of Red Bull's marketing, which is, which is considered some of the most innovative in the world. Hmm. So Red Bull, for example, when they first started, they embraced this concept that people refer to as brand hijacking, where basically you give away your brand and you just kind of put it out there and you hope that people will adopt it, embrace it and kind of make it their own. So when they had first started, they had like crumbled up cans of Red Bull and they would throw them in the corners of nightclubs and they would throw them in the bathroom and they would give them to the people that were working the door at the nightclubs. And so then people would start to wonder, you know, where is this Red Bull coming from? You know, someone obviously has it, but it's not me. And so all these stories started building around word of mouth around Red Bull's market, you know, around Red Bull. And they developed this huge sort of base and buzz before they even had a product on the shelves. And then, of course, they've gone on to become one of the most recognized global brands. So that that fascinated me. And then I thought about back to my days as a religion scholar where I had studied things like um, cargo cults in, in Indonesia, where uh, like during World War II, people would pick up like supplies from airplanes that were dropped off during the war. And they started, they started like mimicking, putting on headphones. And then they started like, you know, trying to imitate the uh, air traffic controllers, thinking that they could get these things to come to them. And there were all these kind of interesting ways in which religions had appropriated different sort of things from the secular realm. Like, for example, like Haitian voodoo in the Americas appropriated aspects of the Catholicism. And so I go through all these different thought experiments, like, you know, why on earth, what are the, all the different reasons why Red Bull could have gotten here? Mm. Um, which is kind of a way of introducing all these different themes of things going on in the West and sort of conventional East-Western dialogue type stuff. But it turns out that actually there was a very simple explanation, and it lies in understanding that Red Bull originally was from Thailand, and basically it was drank by primarily like working-class Thais, like people who were uh, working in these sweatshop-like conditions in factories, or they were out in the rice fields and, you know, super incredible heat. And so if you think of this idea of someone out there, uh, you know, in the fields working hard in these very sort of tough conditions, and someone bringing a bottle of Red Bull to them uh, to help them get through the day, it's actually kind of a nice sort of gesture of like, you know, of sustenance, and there's a sense of meaning and really appreciation and within that context, you can understand that, you know, the, within devotional Buddhism, that people offer these things in devotion to encourage and sort of get that, kind of get that back, right? There's this whole concept of merit. 
and so basically the you know red bull the buddha ends up becoming this like you know on the one hand it's a metaphor of going from you know my fast-paced lifestyle as a as an advertising executive doing strategy for global brands to the slow-paced you know life of being in thailand and southeast asia and then it's also kind of a metaphor for the ways in which brands and different objects and things have meaning that's very contextually relevant, right? So it's like, um, you know, something in the West has might have a much different meaning in, in the East, for example. So then as I started telling the story to my friends, they were like, Red Bull to Buddha, that's, that's just like the most amazing story. And like, in a, in a short phrase, you've kind of captured the whole themes of the book. And so that's, that's how we ended up coming up with the title. Mm, that makes sense. And I, I love the the kind of imagery of also kind of giving this energy drink to the Buddha since, you know, the Buddha is yeah. obviously like performing this sort of ceaseless, you know, uh, compassionate action, you know, that, at least that's the mythos yeah. of it. And sort of like even the Buddha needs some energy, you know, some Red Bull. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's hard, you know, trying to alleviate universal suffering, you know, um, yeah. really interesting. One of the things we talked about before we had this sort of live interview, we had a little pre-chat and we were talking about your sort of studying while you're uh, at Princeton, um, the evolution of technology and the way that religion and technology kind of connect in terms of their development. I was wondering maybe if we could just talk a little bit about some of the broader themes there, especially the ones that are relevant to the kinds of um, things that we're exploring here on Buddhist Geeks, which is obviously a combination of sort of global Buddhist streams kind of converging and coming together with uh, information technology, which uh, as you point out in the book, it's kind of hard to grasp this, but the internet's only 20 years old. It's, you know, younger yeah. than younger than most of us. Yeah. So uh, yeah, maybe we could just talk a little bit about the themes there of uh, technology and religion, kind of how they affect each other as they develop. Well, so if, if you think about technology, I mean, the way that, the way that technology connects us, right? It's like technology and particularly like communication technologies, it provides us with a way to, to share our beliefs and practices in sort of new and innovative ways. And I think about religious traditions, like we tend to think of traditions as these things are, that are established, right? But religions are actually created by people that are inherently innovative. And so when you think of like someone, like you think of the Buddha, for example, the Buddha leaves this life of total opulence, total comfort, where everything has, has been given to him since birth, right? He's, he's a prince. And then he spends five years as a wandering, as, as, as an ascetic, right? And, and learning all of these different practices. Uh, and then eventually reaches this point where um, he sits down under the Bodhi tree and he puts his hand on the ground and he says, you know, I'm basically, I'm not going to move until I find out what is the origin of suffering. So then he reaches this point where he, he basically attains enlightenment. The thing that's interesting, I think it, there's the whole practice there, but then it's also, you know, what does he do next? Like, you know, when you go to, when you go to Bodhagaya, you know, there's, there's this sign where it's like, you know, it's something like, this is where the Buddha stood for 10 days. Because basically he had, he had attained enlightenment. He was like, well, what do I do now? <laughs> you know, and so, so what does he do? I mean, I think one of the most interesting and innovative things about the Buddha is actually he develops this way to 
to share and spread the teachings, right? So he has this, this method that he develops, and then uh, his early disciples, he has them hold a, um, you know, hold an alms bowl and to go out and teach. And so they only eat one meal a day before noon. And so there's this way in which the tradition remains relevant and living. And there's a synergy between, between the, the early adherents and the community that sort of grows and evolves uh, and sort of co-evolves together. And so I think that's sort of the basic, the basic sort of idea that I would refer to as like a technology of facilitating word of mouth and starting to build community organically, right? That's kind of like the first sort of phase. And that's occurring in, you know, what people refer to as the axial age, right? So there's like the Buddha, there's like the stuff that's going on in China, there's the Greeks, there's the Zoroastrians, there's all these kind of different communities around the world that are all developing in isolation from one another, right? They don't really have much interaction between each other, but they're all starting to figure out these ways in which society can start to scale and share information. And then slowly, those beliefs and practices start to be codified into, into traditions. And so then you start sort of moving ahead. And let's say you jump ahead to, you know, to like the innovations in, um, like the printing press, for example, with, you know, with Gutenberg and then um, like Luther nailing stuff on the wall of the church and, you know, these, the ways, the ways in which faith, you know, faith becomes a right of, of individuals. But, you know, the, the printing press starts to empower people to read and start to share ideas. And then you start seeing this huge transformation across Europe. And then uh, leading up to the stuff that I studied in graduate school, uh, I did my master's thesis on the, the Great Awakenings in the Americas in like the 1700s and the 1800s. And so the Great Awakenings were basically this series of transatlantic revivals that occurred in the U.S. And, and Europe. And essentially, a lot of religion scholars refer to the Great Awakenings as basically something that's akin to the first mass marketing campaign in, in world history. Because essentially what you had is all of these people who were inspired by these enlightenment ideas of this idea that, you know, sort of as human beings, we can have a direct connection, you know, as we're part of nature and as being part of nature, we can have a direct connection with our creator because our creator essentially created nature, right? And so what ends up happening is you have all these people starting to embrace these innovations in, um, in how people share share information, they start printing pamphlets, they start printing signs, and then all of a sudden there's this sort of transatlantic revival that starts to, uh, to, to spur these communities and this, uh, this sense of this ethos of individualism and individual empowerment. And then of course that ends up becoming kind of an inspiration behind the, the American Revolution. And then the Great Awakening that occurs in the 1800s becomes kind of an inspiration for the abolition movement. Uh, and then leading up to to the Civil War. And then you can kind of trace as you go over time, you can look at how different innovations in, a, in the way that we share information end up becoming catalysts for all different types of progressive, religious, cultural, political movements. So even coming into like the more modern era, uh, we really can't, like you can't look at the Civil Rights Movement independently of like uh, the widespread adoption of black and white television and radio 
And you can't look at the 60s counterculture independently of like color television and color movies and like this explosion of, of color and youth culture, uh, even leading up to like what we're seeing now with like the all these different democratic uprisings around the world. Uh, you know, you can't look at that independently of like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Instagram and all that sort of stuff. So like moving throughout history, like, you know, traditions are constantly alive and they're constantly relevant and they're constantly being reinvented. And the way in which they're really reinvented is through through these different innovations and how we traffic and share information. Okay, interesting, really interesting. Yeah. And, and it seems like part of what you're exploring in the book is in particular some of the innovations that have happened with information technology. Are there a couple on your mind, you know, the things that you, you've been sort of noticing trends or patterns that are particularly important, especially for folks that are um, trying to practice some of these traditions or are trying to learn about them? Well, I, I think it's, I think it's important to, to keep in mind that traditions are, are living. Yes. And, and I think that when I think of, when I think of tradition, what I think of, I think of traditions as basically they're the accumulated wisdom of our ancestors. And so the way that I think of that, of how traditions relate to the present is that, and particularly in relationship to Buddhism, like the, the thing about Buddhism is that it, Buddhism and a daily practice slows down this sort of reactionary type of thinking, right? You sort of, Buddhism, I think, as I understand it, is just a way of being in the world. You know, it's, it's a way of, of understanding what's going on around you. It's a way of uh, being more mindful and being more compassionate and making more informed decisions. And so as you have a daily practice, you start to realize the ways in which all of these different different media and different technologies around us, if we're not careful, they essentially lead us to bounce around like a pinball, right? I'm constantly being told I should buy this, or I should do that, or I should believe this. And so the way that I think about this in relationship to like people that are, that are listening to Buddhist geeks is like the, the benefits of practice, they radiate out like spokes from a wheel. And so when you're, when you're grounded in your daily life, when you're giving more conscious thought to, to your actions and when you're slowing down this reactionary form of behavior, it actually allows you to, to better engage all the different innovations that are going on in the, in the external world to make more informed decisions about them. Okay. You know, I recently, uh, about a month ago, went on this uh, short retreat entitled Awakened Activism, and it was with uh, uh-huh. Dave, David Loy and David Chernikoff, two teachers that are here in the Boulder area. I think the questions that we sort of discussed in that retreat are really relevant to to this conversation because we sort of talked about the ways that traditionally Buddhism has been more focused on individual liberation and this Mm -hmm. kind of view of awakening where we're trying to kind of awaken ourselves before we can be of real any value to anyone else. Um, and even the Bodhisattva path, you know, it's still about uh, it's still about awakening in this particular kind of Buddhist sense. But we talked about you know the limitations of that model and the ways in which in this kind of world we're living in now, where there are sort of multiple systems crises that are kind of like 
coming up on us and and seemingly grid, gridlocked political systems you know all around the world what is the relevance of of these some of these wisdom traditions when we're dealing with these kind of large systems issues i'm just, just curious since you've studied a lot of these systems and studied some of these things do you have any thoughts on on kind of how our understanding of of awakening and, and buddhist practice uh, might need to change to actually respond to some of the real bigger challenges that we're facing in the global commons? That's a big question, but... <laughs> yeah, well, I think a lot of that has to do with, to take a step back, it has to do with the way in which Buddhism and mindfulness and meditation practices have been adopted in the West, particularly from the time of the 60s to the present. And And I think that the, the general model is what I would refer to as the classroom teaching model, like the, the classroom teaching slash workshop model. Yeah. And so you started to see after the 60s counterculture, you started to see these different, you know, holistic centers, you know, meditation centers, yoga centers start popping up. They have all these different classes that sort of teach us to, to fit mindfulness and to fit practice into our lives. But it does it in a way that it associates the practice with being in a particular space and associates it with something that you're going there for yourself, right? You're going there to take a class, the way that you learn something in school. You know, like taking a meditation class is like, you might take a meditation class on Monday and then you go out and take a cardio class on Tuesday or something, you know? There's like, it's all about these these individual benefits. Yes. You know, like one of the things that I see, particularly like in New York, and I get sort of frustrated about this sometimes, is that you know people say things like, I would love to meditate, but I just can't afford to take a class. Or I would love to meditate, but I just don't have time. And implicit in that is this idea that you have to go somewhere to do it, or you have to be somewhere to do it, or you have to be in a class. And it's somehow something that's separated from our daily life. And I think that's, that's, I think, the biggest sort of obstacle to get past, right, is this idea that we have to integrate mindfulness and compassion into, you know, everything that we do. Um, and so there's, there's that one sort of thing. And I think that another thing, uh, particularly in relationship to, to traditions, is that I think that this is something that I think I would say the activists are in many ways is equally guilty of. Mm. as, you know, sort of people on the far left as well as the far right, which is that there's always this, like, sort of fire drill situation. It's like, you know, oh, my God, the world is ending. I ha You have to do this tomorrow. You have to do this. You have to give us money for this cause because if you don't, the world is going to end tomorrow. And, of course, the world is not going to end tomorrow. And I think one of the challenges that that Buddhist practitioners have in particular is how can we push these activist causes forward without, you know, participating in the cycle of reactionary behavior where we're, you know, we're going to go into these polarizing extremes? Um, you know, like, and I think, for example, one of the things I didn't talk about was that, you know, I moved to New York in 2004 uh, and was initially planning to go back to finish my Ph.D. And I spent a year at a place called the Tannenbaum Center for Interreligious Understanding, and I ran their religion and conflict resolution program. And this became really clear to me when I was there, where basically we were working with all of these amazing religiously motivated peacemakers around the world. 
who are basically putting their lives at risk to, to solve violent, to resolve violent conflicts. And what we found when we studied their methods was actually like the news media didn't really care about, about covering the story of someone who wants peace. It's actually not like, it's not something that, you know, people want to read about. Uh, and so what ends up happening is like these very extreme people are the ones that get the attention of people in press. And I think what you actually find is the majority of people have a moderate viewpoint. The majority of people just want to live their daily life. They don't want to be drawn into all this, you know, this sort of extremism to either the far right or the far left. They just want to have a normal life that they can be happy to spend time with their family. I think it's a really great point. And we did explore that too, the, the sort of uh, the downsides of the activist mindset where you sort of get into these constant reactive patterns. And it was really clear kind of in my mind that these two different kind of approaches have something to offer each other. Because, you know, from what I've seen, most people that are interested in Buddhist practice, you know, a lot of people, you know, go on retreats, do a lot of meditation. I think as a group, we tend to be more, a little bit more introverted and a little bit more averse to conflict. And, uh, you know, a little bit more about, hey, let's just sit back and observe and notice, you know, our reactive (laughs) patterns. And uh, obviously there's downsides to that. And I think many people that are listening to this are aware of that. Going back to this kind of broader exploration of innovation and wisdom, which is sort of the topic of, of Red Bull to Buddha, I was thinking about something that Jack Kornfield often says, and he, he mentioned this actually at the first Buddhist Geeks conference in a panel that I was participating in. And he, he talked about the, the sort of, you talked about the left and right. I think this is sort of a similar uh, spectrum uh, mm-hmm. within the religious traditions is that you, ha- you tend to have conservers or maybe we could think of them as late adopters, I don't know. And then you also have adapters or innovators, people that are sort of pushing boundaries, dropping Mm -hmm. things, changing things. And there's a whole spectrum, you know, in terms of how people are approaching that. Um, One thing that I like about that way of looking at things is it kind of presents this sort of dialectic or this tension, you know, where there's always something pulling us forward and something pulling us back. And in some ways at its best, it seems to be keeping keeping us real in terms of a broader collective uh, exploration. But one thing I wondered about, and I think you talk about a bit about this in the book is we don't live in, a, in, in the same kind of time anymore where these poles and these tensions are pulling each other over long periods of time, over hundreds or thousands of years. Like we're, we're in a time now where disruptive inno- innovation, which you talk a lot about uh, it's happening in an ever increasing way, or at least it appears to be. And that disruption is not just touching, you know, business, it's touching religion, it's touching academia, it's touching, it's touching everything. And I'm wondering, you know, how does that reality of of disruptive evolution becoming an increasing change, becoming kind of more of our baseline how does that change the way that these religious traditions, like Buddhism in particular, that they're evolving? Are we going to have to sort of drop all of what we think we know and just constantly be innovating and constantly be in this sort of groundless position of not knowing what's happening? You know, how do we work with this? How do we, how do we work with some of the huge disruptions that are happening all around us? I think to start, I think it starts with um, I think the common ground is an emphasis upon practice. And so I think that whether you're on 
you know, the, the sort of extreme right or ex extreme left, there's, there's a base, you can, I think a middle ground is a sort of basic understanding that everyone benefits from having a more sort of cohesive interrelationship between their mind and body, right? And, and not, and sort of slowing down a reactionary form of behavior and being more mindful in the decisions that we make in, in daily life. Um, but I think that to speak to your point that we're entering an era where uh, where disruption is essentially the new norm, mm -hmm. uh, and that's basically you know that's a theme in in throughout Red Bull to Buddha, uh, and it's also a theme that I'm exploring in in my next book as well, um, which is called the Disruption Revolution, which is all about this the way in which disruption is going to be the new norm, and and I think I think that uh, you know if you think about the essence of Buddhism, right? Buddhism at its core is teaching you to live, to, to be, to be comfortable living in a state of sort of constant uncertainty, right? It's like you're, that's the whole, that's the whole idea behind letting go of attachments, right? You let go of attachments so that you can see the world as it is sort of free from delusion. Um, you're not thinking about the future. You're not thinking about the past. You're living in sort of in this moment. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's sort of an existential state of being that I think we're going to have to have going into uh, going into the future. So I mean, that's that that would be I think the thing that really kind of comes to mind at, at the at the forefront. Um, but then I think also more broadly is that we we need to be more more mindful in how we use technology. Um, I mean, if if you think of and if you think of what's coming in the future, you know, I think that the other real sort of big challenge, like you know, there's going to be like you know, self-driving cars in 10 to 20 years. There's going to be 3D printing stations in every town. There's going to be, you know, drones that are potentially delivering food to you. There's going to, or like, you know, robots doing your laundry or like all these sort of like crazy things. Um, you know, I, it's funny. I, I interviewed uh, Robert Scoble for my next book and, you know, he, about the age of context. And he has this term that refer, he refers to it as the freak line. Which is that everyone? Everyone has this point where they get kind of freaked out about technology invading into their daily life, and you know the reality is that that's we're we're going to be hitting the free. Everyone's going to hit the freak line, <laughs> you know, like whether you're on the whether you're a conservative or whether you're you know on, and on the, to the extreme right or extreme left or you know everyone's going to be hitting it together. Um, I think another thing in terms of finding balance is something that we really haven't done very well as a society is that we've, we've lost, you know, I feel like younger people, um, we get so attached to the idea of being young and we're always right and we're innovative and stuff like that, that we lose sight of the way in which we can actually learn from people that have experienced leadership skills mm. and, and vice versa. There's ways in which, you know, some people refer to it as, if the term is gentoring, the idea of mentoring someone in an older generation, hmm. this kind of first mentoring of young pe younger people to older people. Um, I mean, because because ultimately, you know, we're going to be innovating and growing so fast that we we just we have to figure this stuff out. I mean, we don't really have a choice, right? I I think uh, it's pretty clear that we don't. Um, yeah, I, I love that term gentoring because I. I feel like I've had a couple of those relationships and they're really interesting and they break down 
so many conventional ideas of of uh, learning and of uh, of roles, uh, traditional roles of teacher and student or mentor and mentee, because there is a way in which some of the older people that I've spent time with, people that are in their 60s uh, in particular, I've learned so much from them. And at the same time, I've had a lot to offer them. And I think many young people do because we, we've we grown up in a time period where we've actually, our, our, our sort of development has been saturated by these sort of disruptive innovations and in technology, especially information technology. And there's just a way in which we understand that world in a way that they, they simply can't, even though, like you're saying, this generation, uh, the older generations, they, they've learned something about life. You know, this is what I've seen. They've learned something about how to live, how to be, how to go walk in nature, how to, you know, like just be patient with, with uh, processes and let them unfold, uh, how to lead, like you're saying you know, that simply takes time and maturity and, and in some ways at this point doesn't seem to be able to be like sped up by certain technologies that much. It's just sort of like takes time and maturity. So it is really interesting to think about this bi-directional uh, sharing of information. I really appreciate that, uh, that pointing that out. Well, and then like one thing that always comes to mind, and this is something that I talk about a lot in, in the book, is that, you know, traditions are all created by by young people. I mean, you look at, you know, Jesus was 30, you know, 30 to 33 years old when he, you know, the Buddha was, you know, when, when he, he taught, you know, the Buddha was 35 when he attained enlightenment, right? The, the, the people that, that, you know, the founding fathers of America were in their thirties. Being old doesn't mean that you embody tradition. <laughs> You know, like, I mean, one of the things that I always think of when I hear people talking about defending traditional values is, you know, would any of these so-called defenders of traditional values, would they really place their life trust in someone who was in their early 30s? Because the person in their early 30s is probably the person that founded the tradition that they're defending, right? You know, there's, there's a way in which there's this transition from like a core group of people who have, who are very passionate about these different beliefs and practices. Something happens as those things start to scale and they become institutionalized. And, you know, they go from, you know, in the same way as like, uh, you know, you can't look at a startup company as just like a mini version of a big company. You can't look at early founders of attrition in the same way as you look at, you know, a global religious tradition, right? They're, they're very different things. And so, you know, one of the one of the ways that I think we can try and find balance, and this is sort of the importance of wisdom, is like, you know, let's not be attached to a particular way that a tradition has been practiced in terms of like different types of rituals, different sacred texts or stuff like that. Let's actually really think more about, you know, how do these how do these teachings and practices relate to our daily life? When I think of being a Buddhist, I mean, I don't go through my day thinking that I'm, oh, this is what a Buddhist should do. Like, it's just sort of seems like it's something natural that I should do, right? It's like, I should be mindful. I should be compassionate. I should like, um, you know, try and free people from suffering. Like there's this very sort of basic intention. And I think that, um, you know, the way that these traditions ultimately keep moving forward is to be continually be conscious of the intention and mindfulness and practice and understanding that these things are going to grow and evolve over time. Yeah. Mm. Sort of what you're describing reminds me of a conversation that I recently had with, um, with Jack Kornfield. And he was talking about how 
uh, in the 50s that this particular lineage in the Buddhist tradition, the Mahasi Sayadaw, a Burmese meditation lineage, um, Mahasi Sayadaw kind of did this really innovative thing where he opened up environments of intensive practice that were previously only available to monastics. And he said, hey, come and sit, you know, meditate for like 10 days, two months, three months, and have these really deep and profound sort of uh, experiences of uh, sort of insight. And by doing that, he was kind of opening it up from, from monastic to lay people. But what I see happening it kind of now is that there's a further innovation which is happening, which is more along the lines of what you're describing of uh, daily life becoming the central focus of practice, moving away from even trying to practice the way monastics have and trying to come up with new ways of practicing together that maintains a kind of depth, um, but a depth that can become increasingly relevant to the lives that we're actually living. And I, I see that reflected in, for instance, the, the retreat teachers who are training right now. Um, one thing is they've done a lot less retreat than previous generations. Previous generations did like years and years and years in India and Burma and Thailand. And the people that are studying now and doing retreats, they, you know, they maybe did like half a year or a year. And so like from the one perspective, you know, it's like, oh, they're not going as deep. But from another perspective, I think it reflects what you're describing, which is that daily life and living in the world and not necessarily kind of separating ourselves out from it all the time is becoming kind of more the basis of, of practice. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, you know, one of the, you know, because you mentioned Mahasi, I mean, one of the things that I talk about in my book was, um, you know, Burma was actually a democracy when it first gained its independence before it became a, you know, a, a socialist state. And Burma's first founder, Unu, had this, had this vision of creating an enlightened society. So, you know, the idea behind the Mahasi Center initially was to basically get one person from every village in Burma. The idea was people would come there and they would gain a certain sort of level of, en of enlightenment by staying there for a particular period of time. And then they would go back and spread those teachings. He also was was mandating that all of the people in his cabinet would have had to attain certain levels of enlightenment. Uh, and he went so far wow. that, and he went so far that people that if prisoners had, had been shown to attain certain levels of enlightenment, they would be freed from prison because that would show that they were no longer a threat to society. Oh no. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's really, you know, it's really interesting. There's, there's stories about, you know, Unu was apparently a really good friend of uh, Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel. And apparently he went, spent time in Burma and Unu taught him how to, how to stand on his head and like taught him all these interesting practices. And, you know, it's really, I mean, when you think about traditions, sort of the big global picture, I mean, and this is, this is something that I really think about a lot in the book. Like, imagine if instead of invading uh, Vietnam, if um, instead of going into Vietnam and the terrible nightmare that that, that that ended up being for America, imagine if America had put, had put its military into keeping UNU in power and hadn't let the socialist government take over. I mean, imagine if, if Burma had remained a democracy, how that whole region would, would have changed, right? Because it's, it's considered the right, I mean, some people refer to it as the rice bowl of Asia because it so, it's so rich in natural resources. But imagine if that was a thriving democratic country and where it is in relationship to China 
and India within the region, you know, how the whole world would be different today. Mm, really interesting. Cool. Th thanks for going down that sort of tangential uh, exploration with me. Yeah. Um, and very yeah. fascinating. I, I knew nothing about UNU and, and, and the sort of mandates there. I, I had no clue that was part of the bigger picture. So but yeah. thanks for filling that out. Um, cool. Any last thoughts or any last things you want to share with, uh, with the Buddhist geeks before we uh, sign off? Um, I, I, I guess I would say that, um, to, I, I think the thing about the thing to remember about Buddhism is to not get too hung up on, um, on what you think it should be and to just focus on your breath and to just focus on being mindful and being compassionate and take things one step at a time and just kind of notice how your your whole life becomes more enriched by not trying to be too attached to something that you think you should be and just to focus more on being uh, on being who you are and, and being mindful in the present Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.